0: Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. This podcast, hosted by Kate Agnew and Marie Ferguson, will empower you to realize your professional dreams by giving you access to our global community of dietitians. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we'll educate you, inspire you, and help you create more impact as a
1: dietitian. Welcome to Dietitian to Dietitian, a new series brought to you by Dietitian Connection. Dietitian to Dietitian is hosted by the Today Show USA nutrition and health expert Joy Bauer, where she delves into different ideas and perspectives on some of the hottest topics in dietetics with two expert dietitian guests. There are so many confusing, compelling and intriguing topics in the world of nutrition. And our goal at Dietitian Connection is to highlight and provide you with different perspectives and ideas on topical issues to keep you in the know, to inspire you, and ultimately to help you become the very best registered dietitian you can be. This episode is supported by the A2 Milk Company. The A2 Milk Company is changing the way the world thinks about milk and bringing people back to the taste and nutrition of dairy. A2 Milk is 100% real milk that comes from cows that naturally produce only the A2 protein type, so it's easier on digestion. Published research suggests A2 Milk may help avoid stomach discomfort in some people.
2: Hi, everyone, and welcome to our very first episode of Dietitian to Dietitian. Thank you so much for joining us. And a very big thank you to our first sponsor, the A2 Milk Company, for supporting today's episode. My name is Joy Bauer, and I am so excited to be here hosting Dietitian Connections' new accredited webinar series, interviewing Power RDs about some of the hottest topics in dietetics. Guys, we have over 3,000 people registered for today's event. That is just mind boggling. So welcome from wherever you're tuning in from, and please let us know in the chat. I would love to see where everybody's coming in from. So why have we put this together, this webinar series? Well, here's why. There are so many confusing, compelling, and intriguing topics in the world of nutrition. Our goal is to highlight and provide you with different perspectives and ideas on topical issues to keep you in the know, to inspire you, and ultimately help you to become the very best RD or RDN, it's a little confusing, you can be. Dietitian Connection wants to serve you, our RD, RDN community. So if you have any suggestions on future topics or future speakers, please let us know in the chat box. You could do it now, or you could also think about it, and you can let us know in the feedback form that you'll be getting right after the webinar. Now, before we get started on today's topic, can traditional weight management and a health at every size approach coexist? We have a few items to discuss. First, there will be time for questions from the audience at the end of the session. So please add your questions to the Q&A box, not the chat box. It's the Q&A box down at the bottom of your Zoom screen. And you're also going to be able to see questions that other members of the audience have submitted. And you can upvote their question if you'd also like to hear that inquiry answered. And that's really important because... If we see one question come in and there's like hundreds of upvotes on it, we'll know and we'll flag it and we'll be sure to get to it. Um, The second piece of um, information is that if you have any tech issues during the webinar, please message the Dietitian Connection team via the chat box. So not the Q&A box, for any tech issues, you wanna head over to the chat box and let them know and they're gonna be able to assist you. And then finally, there will be a recording available after the session. So you'll get an email from Dietitian Connection with all of the recording information within the next 24 hours or so. Um, And that email will also explain how you can get your continuing education certificate for today's event. So then you could submit it and you could get CE credits. Um, So again, remember that um, we will have a recording, so if for any reason you need to walk away from the screen, no worries, you can see it over and over again. And now to introduce our extraordinary guests, and before I get into their impressive bios, and trust me, they have impressive bios, It's important for you all to know that they were very thoughtfully selected because of their vast experience in working with a weight-sensitive population. In other words, people living in larger bodies, and they each come from very different counseling perspectives and approaches. So first up, it is my pleasure to introduce Alyssa Rumsey, a registered dietitian, nutrition therapist, certified intuitive eating counselor, and the author of Unapologetic Eating, Make Peace with Food and Transform Your Life. She is the founder of Alyssa Rumsey Nutrition and Wellness, a weight-inclusive practice that offers virtual counseling and online programs to support people in breaking free from body-based oppression. Her expertise has been featured in hundreds of media outlets, and she speaks regularly at events, online trainings, and conferences around the country. Next up, Leslie Banchi is also a registered dietitian, board-certified specialist in sports dietetics, owner of nutrition consulting company Active Eating Advice, and the co-founder of sports nutrition consulting company Performance 365. She is currently the sports nutrition consultant for the 2020 Super Bowl champion, Kansas City Chiefs, and the Pittsburgh Ballet Theater. She is the author of Sports Nutrition for Coaches and the American Dietetic Association Guide to Better Digestion and co-author of Run Your Butt Off, Walk Your Butt Off, The Active Calorie Diet, and bike your butt off. Leslie is also a blogger for US News and World Report and has a monthly television segment on KDKA-TV in Pittsburgh and is a regular guest on Sirius Doctor Radio. Well, those are quite the bios. (laughs) Welcome, Alyssa and Leslie. We are really excited and super grateful to have you here. So I guess now it is time to get into the questions. And I know this is like a super hot topic and you two are the ones to have this conversation. So again, like huge appreciation for donating your time so generously. So I'm gonna actually ask Alyssa this first question. Many clients are focused only on weight loss. So how do we validate their concerns and still try to advocate for a Haze health at every size approach?
3: Well, first, I just want to say it makes so much sense why people would want to lose weight because in doing so, we're promised not only health, but happiness, belonging, acceptance, respect. And in our culture, in our society, there's so much anti-fat bias just baked into our culture in so many ways. And there are many benefits that come from living in a smaller body. I mean, being able to easily find a wide range of clothing that fits you, being able to navigate public infrastructure like waiting room chairs or airplane seats, and really being valued and accepted by others. So giving up the idea of losing weight can bring about the very legitimate fear of being judged, being disrespected, or worse. So I think it's important to acknowledge that very real oppression exists in our society, and it's understandable that someone would want to protect themselves from this injustice by losing weight. I also think it's important to share, I know we were going to share some definitions in the chat, I'm not sure if they've gone in there yet, but that weight inclusive care and the health at every size framework is not about convincing people that they shouldn't want to lose weight. Really, it's about freeing people from these historically rooted systems of oppression. So in terms of what we can do, I think first thinking of as clinicians, I think it's so important important that we are really deliberately investing time into Examining and unpacking our own biases and privileges. I think, especially as dietitians around weight bias and around the, the impacts that cultural and medical weight based depression have. Now, I say this, and this is not easy work. You know, I know when I first learned about Health at Every Size framework and weight inclusive care, which was really only about five years ago. It was really challenging for me um and it was and continues to be an ongoing process of like learning and examining my own biases and it can also feel really scary i know for me it did because i had been a dietitian at that point for almost 10 years and i felt like i was starting from scratch all over again and which is especially difficult in a culture and in a profession that really demands that we like get it right all the time um i think as a business owner too it was This fear of like, will I still get clients? Um, But it's really important that as clinicians, we're doing this work of unlearning and examining these things, because when you're working with people, especially people in larger bodies, there's a lot of dynamics happening in the room, um, even if the client isn't saying anything about it. Now, in terms of going back to, you know, what can we do when a client comes to us and is really focused on weight loss? I think validating that and validating our lived experience and the pain and shame that they probably have related to their body, um, and validating that dieting and pursuing intentional weight loss was probably something that served them at some point. You know that can be a coping mechanism. That can be something that makes people feel safe or in control. And I think it's really important as clinicians that we're validating that. Um, I also think you know something I always try to do is really understand someone's intent. So what do you hope will happen when you lose weight? Um, And not just health-wise, because I think a lot of times that's what comes up for people, right? They're like, well, I want to manage my diabetes or I want to be able to play with my grandchildren and be healthy enough to do that. Um, But also, you know, like what do they hope will happen? Like what are their hopes and dreams of if they lose weight or or their fears if they don't? So a lot of these things that are often left unsaid and can be very vulnerable for people to share. Um, And I think... You know, at the root of it for so many people, it's this wanting to belong and wanting to be accepted and wanting to feel safe in the world. So it's really important that we're not minimizing this reality and that we're giving space for the client to unpack their desire for weight loss and to really dig in deeper and explore. And then I think, in terms of health related goals, if that is a goal for the client, you know, letting them know that if they want improved health, they can do that regardless of whether or not their weight changes. And I know we're going to talk about that a little bit later on. And then, you know, just lastly, at the end of the day, everybody has body autonomy, right? So like everybody has the right to do what they want with their body, including pursuing weight loss. But I think as clinicians, It's really important that we're also talking about things like the statistics of the long-term efficacy of weight loss and the negative side effects that can come from pursuing weight loss. The fact that weight is not a good indicator of health, despite what the mainstream kind of messages are about that. And then, of course, the societal forces involved in a person's desire for weight loss.
2: Can you, um, Leslie, I'm going to ask you sort of the same question, but I'm wondering, Alyssa, just um, for people who are not hundred percent sure what a weight inclusive type of practice is or the formal definition, we're going to put it in the chat, but if you
3: can just explain it a little bit, that would be great. Sure. So the definition that we're putting in the chat, this actually comes from weightinclusivenutrition.com, which Heather Kaplan has written this. So Weight inclusive care really is taking away this idea that weight is equivalent to health and instead focuses on behavior modification instead. So it really encompasses respectful and compassionate care for people in all body sizes and shapes. Um, and it also removes the kind of personal responsibility for health that our culture really demands a lot of the time um, and acknowledges and works to improve and support all the other social determinants of health that play a really big role in someone's health. And then health at every size or haze for short, that's actually a registered trademark of the um, Association for Size, Diversity, and Health. So it's similar. So it's rejecting the use of weight or BMI as a proxy for health. Um, and it, the focus is put on health and well-being instead of specifically on weight. And so it has five principles, which includes weight inclusivity, health enhancement, respectful care, eating for well-being, and life-enhancing movement.
2: Thank you for that. Thank you so much. And so Leslie, how would you manage or how do you manage clients who come to you and are only focused on weight loss?
4: And Joy, thank you for the question. Alyssa, I always love listening to you. I mean, it is, this is just so exciting and so necessary to have this conversation today. So A very, very quick background is I had a brother. uh, He died in 2015, and we were both out of the same parent, and one of us. Uh, I would say more normal size and one of us uh, larger than life. And he was in every way. And I mean that truly from the bottom of my heart and unfortunately did not survive a lot of complications related to his health. And that being said, uh, certainly when he was growing up, I think a lot of bullying for him, a lot of very inappropriate things that made him shy away from wanting to, to do something to really help him to be the best that he could be. I've, I have been a dietitian like 39 years. It's like, Oh my God, I'm older than everybody on this call, but nonetheless. So, you know, my, my philosophy and all of this is to be the advocate for my clients all the time that is what it is that I do. I view myself as the garment. And sometimes the direction is very circuitous because it needs to be, but at the end of the day, we want to avoid the obstacles. And those obstacles that are out there that get in the way of people being the healthiest that they can be. And it may be some underlying medical issue. It may be some pressure put upon them. For instance, my athletes. You know, I would love to tell you that, Uh, We would not talk about weight at all in professional sports. Mm -mm, It isn't. Then what is that based upon? Uh, No standards because there aren't. It's based upon, well, I think you'll perform better at this advocacy because it is not about the number, as Alyssa said. This term that we're talking about, I don't love the term weight because it means what is that hair? Is that skin? Is that eyebrows? And what are we talking about? Are we talking body composition? And from my perspective, when I am looking at active people, Body composition is really important. So we can't just talk about weight as an isolated indication. And also, how are we defining that? What are people doing? You know, my professional athletes, okay, they could have a DEXA done maybe, but you know what? Some of them are a little too wide to fit on the machine. So, oh, you're getting like half an elbow. That's not really an indicator of what's going on. So all these types of things, I just had a conversation with a client the other day insistent upon. I'm going to be, this is what I'm going to be. What is the outcome going to be? And I want to lose body fat. I want to have a six pack. I can't guarantee you that if you lose body fat, that you're not going to lose it from your pinky toe we're not magicians. This is not what we do. And reality is very, very important. It is not necessarily to dissuade somebody from what they're doing, but it is realizing we are the pit crew, they are the driver. And it really is our goal to enable with the fuel kit, whatever that looks like with some of the habits around what they do so that they can live the best life that they can live. And if that translates to wanting to optimize career, optimize performance, uh, career extension, whatever it is, or just feeling like they live the best life or something, people will say feeling comfortable in their skin. Who am I to determine what that is for somebody? I can't, but I'm certainly going to help them to the best of my ability because especially in this world where I work, the coaches, they know nothing about this. Uh, The athletic trainers, they're too busy doing other things and I love them, but this is not their area of expertise. Management is like really putting the pedal to the metal about where somebody needs to be in the dance world. It is even tougher depending upon what the dance master is thinking. So really feeling like I am wielding the shield. This is my goal here to be on the front line to help people to be the best that they can.
2: Amazing, thank you. Thank you. And 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 really listening to both of you, I mean, there's a lot of overlap, even though you have different perspectives and approaches, lots and lots of overlap. And I think like the big word that keeps popping into my head is compassion um, and inclusion, right? So, Leslie, I'm going to ask you more of a straightforward question, and that would be um, lots of overweight and clinically obese people find that they do experience health benefits after they lose weight. So here's the question is, in your opinion, is promoting more realistic weight loss preferable to body weight acceptance?
4: You know, I think, first of all, people have to accept themselves anyways, because if you're not going to be your own best friend through this process, you're not going to be able to do anything in a sustainable way. And you know, the reality is that when people are really paying attention to themselves and being kind to themselves and nourishing and nurturing themselves, they're probably going to feel better because they're not beating themselves up all the time. Is and and you know so that in and of itself has nothing to do with the particular diet that they're on. It has to do with the fact that they're actually willing to devote some time to the day. And I think that also the, the, you you know, this part of it is you know should people feel empowered and should they feel enabled? Absolutely, they should. But you know, are we doing that in an appropriate manner? Are we doing that in an accessible way? Are we doing that in an affordable way? Are we resonating with relevance with the things that we say? Because you know, that's where it's creating the rapport. And uh, Alyssa, I know you've experienced this too. I think the first time that I'm meeting with somebody, I never just see somebody once. Is I don't know. We might play cards. We might talk about stilettos. We might do whatever. You have to establish that rapport with somebody first, and you know, it is about emotion. The facts are way down the road. And people don't really want to hear statistics. They don't care. They want to know that you're interested in what it is that they're saying. Listening, really finding out what is exciting, what is engaging, what is that portal of entry for that individual. But that to me is the most important thing and then the more comfortable that person becomes with you of opening up with you and having conversations, then you advance dialogue together. There's a hand in hand, if not I'm telling you what to do and you're going to do it because I can't make somebody do anything. Trust me, it doesn't even work in my own home. Not at all.
2: <laughs> it's, I think it's harder in our own homes.
4: <laughs> Much harder. <yes.
2: laughs> oh, my God. So, Alyssa, what are your thoughts on exactly this? So, again, the question was with lots of people, um, you know, in, in the population uh, living in larger bodies, they do experience health benefits after they lose weight. So is promoting a realistic weight loss preferable, even if it's just small amounts of weight loss, preferable to current body weight acceptance?
3: Yeah. So again, kind of from the health at every size perspective, I think it's important to again, acknowledge that health at every size framework and, you know, clinicians who utilize that framework, it doesn't mean anti-weight loss. It doesn't mean anti-nutrition. It doesn't mean anti-health and it doesn't mean anti-person who diets or anti-person who wants to lose weight. Really it's anti the, the weight normative frameworks that equate weight to health and in doing so make health really inaccessible for a lot of people. Um, and in doing so perpetuates weight stigma and weight discrimination. And when someone experiences weight stigma or weight bias, that is actually an independent risk factor for chronic diseases and poor health outcomes. Meaning if they did not experience weight stigma, they wouldn't have had that outcome. So just to kind of like ground us in, in that, um, and then to the question of, uh, you know, is promoting a more realistic weight loss preferable to body weight acceptance, you know, my question to that is always like, well, what does like realistic weight loss, what does that mean? You know, I know a lot of times people come in and doctors have sort of arbitrarily given them this like 10 pound, 20 pound goal. Like, where did that come from? And I always come back to why can't we just advocate for health promoting behaviors, regardless of their effect on weight, you know, because you can have body weight acceptance and still pursue health promoting behavior change. It doesn't have to be one or the other. Um, And then also, you know, totally validating that, yes, like a lot of people do experience uh, health benefits when they, they lose weight, but is that caused by the weight loss or is it caused by the behavior change? And so this is like correlation versus causation, right? So there's extensive research. And this was something that was like really mind blowing to me because, you know, I, like many of us was trained in a weight centric framework where it was like, okay, di- you know, someone with diabetes, they lose X percent and then their diabetes is better. Um, but there's actually so much research that shows in terms of these modifiable health risks, it's actually the person's behaviors, not their weight that's having the impact on health. So they might lose weight in addition, or they might not, but it's actually the behaviors that's having that causational effect on someone's health outcomes. So, you know, when someone starts eating more nutritious foods, when they start moving more, when they are managing their stress better, that's when we see these disease markers, you know, the physical disease markers, at least right. Of like blood sugar, heart rate, blood pressure, cholesterol, we see those decrease And this and this is shown in so many studies, like this decrease happens even when a person doesn't lose any weight. Um, so just like one example of that, there's a study looking at blood pressure and physical activity and found that blood pressure and resting heart rate decreased regardless of whether or not the person lost weight. And so this was the case across all BMI ranges. Um, so again, I always come back to like, is it the weight loss that's causing the health benefits? And it's understandable that as dietitians we might think that because that's how we were trained. Like this, again, I said at the beginning, I've had to do like so much like questioning and unlearning and it was not an easy process, but I just come back to, is it the weight loss causing these benefits or is it the behavior change? And we can work on health-promoting behaviors regardless of their effect on weight.
4: Yeah, well put. Well, I wanted to add to that is, as, and to that point of, you're not is, is reframing. So it is health gains. Uh, health gains uh, are are not always related to what a number on a scale is. I'm giving you a very specific example of that. You know, a lot of referrals uh, to Alyssa's point, even from orthopedic surgeons who think, like, oh no, I'm going to hold this out. You're not going to get this surgery. You're not going to get a new knee or whatever other body part it is until you lose X amount of weight. Well, you already have somebody devastated now thinking, oh, I'll never be able to get a new body part because what if I can't do that? But what people then will do is sometimes even not the, the changes in eating, are not always the healthy ones, which is why I think our guidance is so critical and what we recommend. So now somebody has minimized whatever aspect of their diet they have, and now their albumin is low and their outcome is going to be worse. And all these types of things happen because they're just so worried about what to do, or they've been given this mandate that may be absolutely devastating, debilitating, and unrealistic. So I think doing some reframing and some education and some hand holding and some better guiding, well, we're not going to, to go down that path. We're going to think about something else. Instead, we can help improve that person's outcome. And even if, to, 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 Alyssa's point, even if weight may not change and it may not, but they're at a better health outcome, surgical outcome, because of what they've done with their eating, that is a step in the right direction. And that means being advocate. And let me tell you, orthopedic surgeons aren't easy Ego through the roof. And I can say that because I'm old and cranky and I've done this forever. So it's just the way it is and why we have to open. Our mouth and why we really have to be the advocate for our patient.
2: Okay, so this leads. No filter
4: either, like none.
2: None. (laughs) So I love that you brought that up because this leads me to a question for what I'm thinking are a lot of RDs that are currently watching. So, you know, you're looking to grow your business. Let's say if you want private practice, whether it's in person, locally, or virtually. And a lot of these referrals come from. Different subspecialists, physicians, healthcare uh, practitioners—whether it be, you know, endocrinologists, rheumatologists, internists, um, you know, orthopedic surgeons, obviously—but much more than that as well. You know, we have like the fitness trainers, and you'll also have nurse practitioners, and so people come to us in roundabout ways. And when you're growing your business, every single referral is gold, right? Um, you know, you have an opportunity there to grow success, and so. If a client or patient is referred by a physician or other healthcare practitioner with weight loss as the primary goal of treatment, how do you manage that? You don't want to lose this referral source. You want to do good by your patient and your client. And there's a lot of sort of juggling and dancing to do here. I'm throwing this to both of you guys. We would love to know.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, I think given our training as dietitians, it makes so much sense. Like that we, and like you mentioned, Joy. Like if you are a business owner and kind of like you need that financial piece of things, um, but also just yeah, as our training of dietitians, it makes so much sense that we want to like rely on or feel like we have to rely on. Well, the doctor says this or wants this, so I have to follow or do that. And there's a lot of power dynamics involved with you know, the doctor and the dietitian, you know, anyone who's worked in clinical, I worked in clinical for seven years and it was always in my training, like the doctor as the final word, like, right. Dietitians were kind of more passive, like providing recommendations, but like doctor as the final word. And that was something I had to also unpack this like power dynamic piece. And you know, Leslie talking about advocating for our clients and patients. and and that can be really difficult. Leslie, I worked in the surgical ICU for for six years. So yeah, surgeons can be difficult. But I think you know if a, a doctor or another practitioner is referring to us and now that client or patient is working with us as the dietitian, we're responsible for the intervention that we're providing, not the doctor. Um, you know certainly, there's interdisciplinary care. but, I also think, you know, so many dietitians talk about like, and no, like, okay, doctors get what, like one nutrition course. Um, and we're like, okay, we're, you know, the ones that get taught more about nutrition, So why do we assume then when it comes to weight that doctors know what's best? Um, Because I think there's still so much misunderstanding about the link between health and weight among doctors and health professionals in general. And I think oftentimes doctors don't know much at all about weight stigma and the effects that it has or that causation versus correlation that I mentioned when it comes to health and weight. Or the roots of the BMI and how arbitrary many of those or most of those categories are and the benefits of weight inclusive care. Um, So, again, you know, I go back to if the doctor or someone else is referring for that, what is their goal? with the weight loss, like what's underneath that, right? Is it blood sugar management? Is it improved cholesterol? Like Leslie said, unfortunately there are barriers for people with, you know, in regards to like life-saving surgeries, Um, but I just come back to, you know, doctors are referring to us because they want us to help the patient improve their health behaviors. And we can do that without putting the emphasis on the number on the scale.
4: And I would just add to that, that that I think that it's really important that as you're, as you're starting out is to have a, a, a very good idea of what your philosophy is, what it is that you're going to offer. If you put that together as a sell sheet and wherever the area is that you are sending that out to various medical practices so that they are aware of what it is that you've done, that you may even incorporate a few patient testimonials into that if you want to. We all have certain philosophies of the way that we do things. You know, I some people hate to work with me. I'm a smart ass. I can't help it the way it is. But you know, there are others that do, but I think it, it's still kind of the the explaining and not only what the what the physician is asking for, what does the patient really want? is, you know, sometimes, and then one of my doctors told me I have to do that. I don't really want to, but what I want to do is. So using that ear listening very, very closely to what it is that our patients are asking for. And if you have got to, and you should be communicating back to whoever referred, that's what you document. It's really important to do this. This is above and beyond a number on a scale, a percent body fat, and anything else is how do we create that relationship? And what are some of the outcomes that we're seeing that aren't necessarily Necessarily, so black and white is that needle on the scale or that digital number.
2: Yeah, and I think what like both of you guys said too. um, For people that are first starting out and trying to grow a business, I think communication, obviously compassion and connection, and developing that relationship with your patient or your client is key. But communication with the referring physicians, because. You know, as you said, Alyssa, they don't know our field. We know our field better than anybody. And you now know the patient as well. And I think, you know, relaying to them how you work and why you work in that way and a little bit of juice back You can send some research. You can also talk about case studies and testimonials. It just helps them to build confidence so they will continually fuel those referrals.
3: Yeah, agreed. That's exactly what I was going to mention is I do think, you know, advocating on behalf of our our clients and patients and like offering to give their doctor a call and talk to them about this. And especially if, you know, the doctors are referred specifically to your practice. Um, But I do that even with people, you know, most of my referrals are not from physicians, but obviously my clients also have physicians that they're working with. And so I will often do that as like, say, Hey, I'm happy to either, you know, we talk about how they can advocate for themselves in the doctor's office, or I've also communicated with other members of the healthcare team. Um, So, yeah, I think that that's definitely something that we can and, and should do as dietitians.
4: And, and I would just add to that as well is you know a lot of people that uh, may be referred from personal trainers who may have a particular view of this is the way I want somebody to eat is having that conversation with the personal trainer so nobody's working against each other is it really is about collaboration, but it's the client in the middle, not Experts on either side. That's not the way it works. It is client out and bringing everybody together, kind of a kumbaya moment. But in a very positive way, we have to do that. So I want to make sure that recommendations that I'm making around eating are supporting whatever those fitness goals might be, and they're not fighting against each other or going head to head, and that it becomes comfortable, doable, realistic, personalized, and manageable for that person in the middle because. That's what it is. It's personal eating. It's personal training. It's like all of it. It has to be that way. Not one size fits.
2: And and by the way, you know, there's so many sources of referrals. If you are not on the same page as one particular referral, and you see that you're not going to be able to get them to a place that it is kumbaya, so be it. You know, you pivot and you go in another direction. Yeah, I think we could all agree on that. Um, So, uh, Leslie, let me ask you this: Is it unethical? not to help somebody lose weight when they have a debilitating health condition.
4: Well, I think we have to figure out you know, what what is debilitating health condition. There are certainly are a lot of things that could be debilitating health condition and is everything. I, I would love to say to somebody, all right, you know, If I can guarantee you, and I could never do that hypothetically here, if you lose 20 pounds, your osteoarthritis goes away. There's not one study to show that that is the case. So that's false advertisement on my part. But I think that this aspect of debilitating where somebody may not be feel in control or feel overwhelmed for whatever it is that they do, how can we empower and enable? How can we help them to control whatever variables they can? And just being able maybe to pay more attention to how they might eat over the course of the day, of what it is they choose to eat, of the consistency with which they do things that's still offering guidance, but it's making it more broad because then we're not dwindling it down to a calorie or God forbid, a macro or any of that kind of stuff that's out of the equation. It is let's think more let's think about that is let's think about that in terms of what you have available and accessible to you if you have a debilitating condition that prevents you from working how can you nourish your body appropriately within a price point if you don't like to cook how can you do things that are easier to prepare that is very valuable information so we are literally then helping with health gains making that person feel yes i can instead of oh things will never change that critically a, a critically important point. Of, that's the way that, that I would do that.
2: So if I'm, if I'm hearing this right, just just so I, I I know that I'm understanding what you're saying, Um, you know, you again, you work on the behavioral changes to get health gains. And probably if it's somebody who's incredibly health, unhealthy, they're going to most likely lose some weight, which could then enhance the health condition, the underlying health condition that we're talking about. And like in my head, I'm thinking, okay, somebody who has very, very high um, unsettling blood pressure and maybe is a diabetic as well and is on a cocktail of medications. And the cardiologist refers over because this person is, let's say, a hundred plus pounds overweight. And even with a little bit of weight, a 10 pound weight loss can markedly improve the blood pressure numbers so you would remove any talk of weight loss or scale stuff but you would in the back of your head maybe be thinking of health gains which would then inevitably lower the weight a little bit
4: i think we're looking at short term is what can we do right now? What are you willing to think about doing right now? And you know, perhaps that might be uh you know, what it is that somebody decides to prepare, or maybe they're moving a little bit more, or maybe they're not sitting quite as much over the course of the day, because those are all gains, those are all improvements, those are all things that somebody can do as strategies to help to make themselves feel better. And we can also, from a blood pressure perspective, right? We can talk about things that as registered dietitians, we learn through our practice of maybe you're increasing foods that are higher in potassium. And maybe if you need to, you are lowering foods that are higher in sodium if you are salt sensitive, which isn't everybody. But by virtue of making those changes, you may be making behavior changes with eating choices, making some changes to that plate that ultimately may translate to some improvement in those numbers. And perhaps it may be a drop in weight, not because that was the initial goal of doing things, but because of the swap ins or the swap outs that people make with their eating, it's something that they notice. It's like one of those things that happens, but that's not the only thing, right? People can lose weight and their blood pressure may still be horrible because they're not making any change underlying to the, the composition of the foods or the nutrients that they're consuming.
2: Okay. So it, it sort of sounds like you incorporate a lot of. Alyssa's coaching philosophies, even though you're more of a traditional weight management perspective than Alyssa, it's almost like a little bit merged. I mean, I
4: think if, if, uh, have I, It's probably the, the issue of being around forever, is trying finding out what worked and what doesn't. And remember in my internship, you know, back in the dark ages, that, you know, the list, the list of choosing and avoid. <laughs> Everybody looked at a list and you know, they're crying. As they look at the avoid, is everything I like, it's gone. Well, that's not really helpful because then you've lost somebody from the beginning. So, yeah, yes, I do think that we have to be more inclusive in our recommendations of where it is that we, that what it, what it is that we're trying to help people with and how it is that we choose to help them. And, you know, back in the nineties, no, this was not defined at all, but it, it's a very, very important part of what I do, which means that then it creates some enemies. And I have some physicians that would say, no, I'm not going to refer to you because I want you to put somebody on a five-hour right. ride. I said, no, not on my watch, not going to happen. So.
2: So, you know, Alyssa, I'm going to ask you the same like targeted question, you know, do you think that it's unethical not to help people lose weight when they have a debilitating health condition? And we could just sort of imagine what that debilitating health condition would be.
3: Yeah. Well, I think first kind of thinking about what is ethical practice. So I actually googled ethics (laughs) the other day. um, And I wrote down a couple of the definitions, because I think it's really interesting to kind of like think about it from this perspective. So a couple definitions of ethics, um, moral principles that govern a person's behavior, or conducting of an activity, motivation based on ideas of right and wrong, And then the branch of philosophy dealing with values related to human conduct with respect to the rightness and wrongness of actions and the goodness and badness of motives. So I read these out loud because I think it's really clear, right? That it's so ethics is so wrapped up in morality and in being like a good person. And as humans, like we inherently, like we feel shame if we feel like we're being unethical because we feel like that's equated to being a bad person and it's you know in my mind it's like even hearing those couple of definitions right it's like very binary like there's a right way and there's a wrong way and the subtext is like okay if you do the wrong thing you're a bad person and subtext of that as human beings right is this shame of being like not worthy or being unvaluable and i think kind of taking that to dietitians as dietitians in being committed to ethical practice of course we want to do the right thing for the client or patient, right? We want to avoid the unethical practice, partly for the client and patient. But I think also it can bring up shame in us and make us feel like we're not worthwhile practitioners if we're not doing the right thing. And I think, you know, Brene Brown talks a lot about shame and talks about how, you know, shame is not something that humans like to feel or talk about. Um, So I just think, you know, we have to kind of like, you know, think about this a little bit in terms of ethics and ethical practice. And then, you know, looking at our, RD code of ethics, right. We all have it. Um, I have to admit until the last year or two, I didn't really pay much attention to it. Um, but it's this, you know, list of values and ethical principles guiding our profession. And so I pulled out a couple of them because I think a couple kind of speak to this question. Um, nutrition and dietetics professionals shall act in a caring and respectful manner, mindful of individual differences, cultural and ethnic diversity. And there's also a principle of justice. And two of the bullets under that principle are how dietitians will work to reduce health disparities and protect human rights, and also will promote fairness and objectivity with fair and equitable treatment. Now, I think, you know, when we kind of parse out some of those definitions a little bit, um, the first thing as I was reading this, again, just like the other day, pulling this up, it reminded me of something that Deb Bregard, who's a psychologist who specializes in eating disorders, says. And she says, we often prescribe for fat people what we would diagnose as an eating disorder in thin people. So when we think about ethical treatment, like that has always really stood out to me. And then when we think about objectivity, right, dieticians should promote fairness and objectivity with their treatment. Now, going back to bias, as human beings, we are never going to be able to be fully objective because we all have our own biases, you know, explicit and a lot of those implicit. And this is why I mentioned at the beginning, like doing this work to really uncover and address our own biases is so important. Um, So now going back to the question of like, is it unethical to not help someone lose weight if they have this debilitating um, health condition? You know, the question is really assuming that the debilitating health condition is a result of their weight. And we really have to be careful not to assume that we have to be careful. You know, Leslie said something similar. We have to be careful to not assume that if they weighed less, they wouldn't have this debilitating health condition, whatever that is. You know, people in every single BMI range develop diabetes, high blood pressure, joint pain, high cholesterol. Like there's literally not one condition that affects humans that affects only people in larger bodies. So I just think we have to be really careful to not make assumptions about that.
2: Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Wow, I'm going to remember a lot of those things that you said, especially about the, like the weight plan for. Um, somebody who's looking to lose weight is like an eating disorder for a thin. Can you say that yes. one once again because I just like mushed yeah. that up, but I like yes. it, it really uh, struck yeah a it's
3: powerful, right? I first heard this, yeah, a number of years ago. So this is again, Deborah guard, um who was also instrumental in, you know, this association for size, diversity, and health and the Hayes um principles as they stand now. So, I'm going to read her direct quote: "We prescribe for fat people what we diagnose as an eating disorder in thin people." You know, so this is something too. Um, Reagan Chastain is an amazing fat activist and educator, um, and she has these really fantastic resources on her blog, which is Dances with Fat, uh, either .com or .org, and they're cards for like talking to the doctor about your weight and your health. And one thing that she always says is like saying to the doctor, well, if I had a normal BMI, what would you be telling me? You know, if I had the same condition, but my BMI was normal, like you're just telling me to lose weight. What would you tell me if I wasn't a normal BMI range? Um, so yeah, the, yeah, Deb's work is, is amazing. And and that quote has stayed with me. Super powerful. So I'm
2: going to just I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you all one last question that I think is a great summary um, before we skip over to take some of the audience questions. And that is this. And either one of you can jump in. And the question is, can traditional, after we spoke about all of this, can traditional weight management and a haze help at every size weight inclusive approach coexist and be provided as a blended approach, not just one or the other?
4: And I'll, I'll start. And, I, and again, I think we have to redefine traditional of what that means as we really fine tune that to resonate with the practice, with the ways that we do things. So if we think about uh, what we all learned in the course of our dietetics curriculum, and granted it's changed some, but probably not all that much in the past 39 years, is things that we think are important for people to understand about what they eat. And that doesn't mean down to the minutia of micros and macros and phytos and all this, that and the other, but what it is that food does for you, uh, how to combine foods to optimize nutrient amplification i've uh, to talk about eating habits surrounding foods of taking the time to enjoy and sit and savor and not necessarily do drive by eating all those types of things you know how that interact, how food makes you feel. I mean, all of that. Is that somewhat traditional? Yes, it is because those are things that we all learn and then taking it one step beyond that. So having that conversation with our patients and then listening to what it is that those goals are and maybe helping to Reframe, and that doesn't mean shoot down what it is that they say. It means reframe. so it ends up being realistic. I and mean, even more than sustainable, maintainable is what we're talking about. No matter what it is that people are doing is I would love for them to be able to do this of something positive, six months down the road, six years down the road, sixty five years down the road. Then I think we've really done our patients a service instead of a disservice,
2: okay. So your answer is most definitely yes, yeah, yes. And Alyssa?
3: Well, I think, you know, as as dietitians, I think, of course, many of us want this to be true. I know I did when I was first introduced to the weight inclusive approach, because then we can pick and choose. And again, going back to that morality piece, that ethical piece, we can feel like we're doing the right thing for every person. We can be good people. We can be good practitioners. Um, so of course it's tempting to believe that we can like weave in both of these frameworks. And again, like I feel that so strongly because I was there at one point too. And it was really, really terrifying for me to feel like, again, I'd been a dietitian for close to a decade. I'd been in the nutrition and like sports field for like over 15 years. And it was so closely tied to my identity as a human at that point too. And so it was really, really scary to feel like I had to just walk away from all these beliefs that I had held for so long and so much of my training and these ways of practicing that most of my colleagues seemed like they were still doing. Um, it was also very scary for me because it, it meant that I had to acknowledge that I had most certainly done harm in my weight-centric care in the past. And again, this brought up shame and brought up this like, have I been a bad person? Have I been a bad practitioner? Um, So I just want to acknowledge all of that, like if people are kind of feeling some of those feelings right now, that's so, so normal and like part of the, the process of unpacking and examining all of these things. And I think, you know, at some point we have to be willing to draw a line, like what am I willing to do? What am I not willing to do? And boundaries can be really freaking uncomfortable to draw. And it can bring up a lot of fears like, well, what if I'm wrong? Or what if I'm going to lose clients, right? What if I'm going to lose that referral source? If I'm wrong, like, what does that mean for me as a dietitian or like as a human? Um, You know, in saying all this too, I also think it's important. We haven't talked too much about this today, but. I also think it's important to acknowledge that like in our professional culture as dietitians and in many workplaces, it is really difficult to reject or move away from a weight centric model of care. Um, it is not easy because it is still, again, anti-fat bias is baked into like literally every level of our society. And it's been around like well before there was this like link between health and weight. Um, so it is not an easy thing to do. Like standing up for justice is really, really hard and examining and confronting your biases really, really hard, acknowledging that you may have messed up or done harm really, really hard. Um, But I think, you know, what I've also found is kind of going down this weight inclusive path. You are not alone. Like there's so much support and training out there now. um, And it's really just life-changing work. Like it has changed my life. Both of the as a clinician, but also as a human. And so I think, you know, at the end of the day, what is it, you know, cause yes, we're talking about nutrition and we're talking about health, but like, what is it you believe in? Like, what are you like grounded and rooted in? Like, what do you believe in for your fellow human beings? Like what kind of world do you want to live in? And for me, and again, this has been such a process, but for me, what I've come to in the last few years is that you know, I'm committed to liberation. I'm committed to liberating people from a lot of the body based oppression that exists in our society. Um, and as I was thinking about this the other day, I was reminded of a quote, and I actually didn't know who said it. It's been floating around, I think, a lot, especially in the last year or so, but it was uh, Lilla Watson, who's actually an Aboriginal elder and activist from Australia. And so she says, If you have come here to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. And I think I just keep coming back to as a clinician, you know, am I here to help people or am I here to, you know, because like all of us as humans, like if we can liberate all people from these different oppressive systems, like we're also going to liberate ourselves.
2: Thank you. I'm feeling super empowered. So. Um, I think now what we're going to do is we're going to take questions from the audience. We have quite a few. If you have a question for Alyssa or Leslie, please submit it again down below on the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. And remember that you could see questions that other members of the audience have asked, and you could upvote their inquiry so that, you know, you'll let us know that you want to hear it being answered as well. We're not going to have time. Um, I mean, that's an understatement. We're not going to have time for all of the questions. There are quite a few but I have a team that have picked a few questions along the way and they're going to be sending them over to me. So for the first question um, we have, this is from Kristen and it's to Alyssa. The haze and weight inclusive approaches are easy for me to wrap my head around for less extreme weights, but I'm curious how the framework addresses people that are on an extreme end of the spectrum, high or low. In these cases, it is my understanding that weight change is the most urgent change for preservation of life. So how would a Hayes dietitian manage this situation? So I feel like we did cover some of this, but, um, there there have been quite a few questions that have come in like this. So I, I think, um, you know, to pay respect to some of the questions, I wanted to read this exact one, if that's okay.
3: Yeah, sure. Um, so, So yeah, this is a very common question. And I actually think if you go to the ASDA website, they address this right on their homepage, like, well, what if someone's 600 pounds, like, what do we do then? And again, going back to, you know, how can we best support this person? Um, I also come back to, you know, my client's own lived experience and there's usually so much shame wrapped up in that. And shame is not a good motivator for change. It's not, because when we feel shame, it keeps us in this cycle, right? And what we need is is compassion, which I think has been a theme today. Um, And, you know, there's also a lot of research showing, and I certainly see this with my own clients, that when weight-related feedback is given, people are less likely to make those longer-term, sustainable, maintainable health behavior changes, So telling people like you're overweight, you're obese, and that you need to lose weight that can actually cause health behaviors to worsen. So that's actually associated with increased rates of binge eating with decreased physical activity, um, versus, you know, more of that weight inclusive approach. That's not, that's validating someone's lived experience with their body and their, their struggle with their weight. Um, but also coming back to like, okay what can I do? Like, no matter what my weight, what can I do that comes from this place of compassion and self-care and just wanting to support myself, no matter what the outcome is. Um, So this is the case of, you know, someone in any body size. And I don't remember if this person like specifically said this in the question, but also just to add that, you know, um, if someone's body size is causing them like difficulty in daily life, we're not necessarily the right people to go to because at that point it's not a nutrition issue. Like I think we need to broaden our view of how we might help that person. And again, going back to, you know, someone had knee pain or hip pain, you know, like I do right now in a thin body or in a smaller body, what would you recommend they do? What did my doctor tell me? They told me to go see a physical therapist. They didn't tell me to lose weight. They told me to go see a physical therapist, So I think we need to also thinking of that, like advocating for our patients and clients that way too. Thank you so much for that. Um, So here's
2: another question. This is for Leslie, and this is from Angela. How do you address this conversation with referring MDs who only use BMI and weights as a measurement of success?
4: Uh, And again, because loud mouth about things is, I think it's really important to educate the MDs of truly What are we looking at definition of outcome? What types of things that have that, that obviously can't be a BMI is, you know, realizing and kind of throwing it out there is, you know, people come in all different shapes and sizes as they do. Uh, We're fruit salads, right? Nobody's just a banana. It doesn't work that way. (laughs) People have different body frame sizes because they do. And, you know, we're not going to do bone transplants. We're not going to do those types of things. So you're really taking, thinking about that person and as we advocate and then communicate and educate and really trying to have physicians understand what it is that we bring to the table, right? That's marketing, what it is that we do. Uh, Anything else out there, we have to be really, really good sales reps. And these are the types of things that I really like to talk to my patients about. And this is why I do things this way. And, you know, that in and of itself starts a conversation. Does that mean you might have some physicians who don't refer to you? Yep probably yes, but you might have others who I didn't even think about that. I didn't even know. And that is really a nice thing because potentially you are increasing your referral stream because now we with Oh, oh, it is more than just a diet or the 1200 calories or whatever other ridiculous thing that, that it is that a physician thinks that one should do, because obviously eating is such an easy thing to do that you solve it in five minutes. So, yeah.
2: That's great. And by the way, at the same time, you're empowering the med- medical profession with current knowledge base and compassion. We keep coming back to that word. So this is going to be the last question. It's actually for both of you from Rosa. For over 20 years of practice, I focused on behavior changes, but unfortunately, many, unfortunately, many dietitians that identify as Hays have begun to stigmatize dietitians that do work with individuals who desire weight loss. How do we remove weight judgment from fellow practitioners? I even experienced backlash from objecting to the labeling of dietitians as fat, thin, et cetera.
3: Okay. This, I is, can like, start. Like, okay. this is like RD <laughs> bullying, sort of, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yes, and I have I have seen some of that going on as well. Um, to address the the last part there of like labels of like fat or thin, those aren't labels. Like we wish that they were, but they're not because we're treated differently in society based on our body size. Like just to give one small example, a couple of years ago, my partner uh, took a photo of me. I didn't know like eating a sandwich and I'm like crunched over eating this sandwich. And I posted on my Instagram and just talked about how like we rarely see women just eating food and like being messy with food. And I got like accolades. I got media requests. I got like thousands of people liking it. Some of my fellow colleagues who are in fat bodies were like, this is so cool. Like women eating food, let's post photos. They post photos. They got, you know, hate messages, like death threats. They're like, you're promoting obesity. So it's not a label like thin privilege is a social justice issue. Like just, I want to be super clear with that. Um, The other thing I'll say, like, yeah, I do not endorse bullying. I think again, like I hold so much space for dietitians who um, you know, the different things that these kind of conversations bring up um, because it is really challenging. It goes against so much of what our, our training was. I think we also have to be careful. Like, is it bullying or is it fat folks standing up for themselves? Like, is it fat folks just being like, we've been experiencing oppression for decades? Like haze is not new like this is comes out of the fat acceptance movement that was in the 1960s like this work has been being done for decades and i know i felt this like when i first found this like five years ago i'm like oh my gosh these people seem really angry like i felt like a lot of resistance to it but as i got to know these people in this community like they have been doing this work and fighting this battle for decades And so we can't expect them to just, like, answer all our questions and, like, do it in this nice way. Um, And I also think, last thought on this, is that, you know, when, like, we're all free to, like, we have autonomy, we can, like, have our own opinions, but when our opinion encroaches on someone else's right to exist, like, that's not okay. And that's a lot of what I see, like, a lot of anti-fat bias a lot of times in these comments And just like, that's not okay. Like you can have your opinion, but when it encroaches on someone's like right to exist, like that's where we have to draw a line.
4: And I would add to that is, is, is yes, these conversations are really tough to have. And what are some of the similarities that we all share rather than antagonizing about the differences is that might be one thing that would be worth talking about and really thinking in every, every way that we communicate. And a lot of us do things online socially and thinking about how are people receiving that? Because obviously it's a blank screen. We don't know everybody who's seeing what it is that we do. And are we being appropriate or are we being antagonizing? Are we being inclusive? Are we being exclusive? And so a little soul searching, I think is good for us all realizing that we're not done. Otherwise we would just hang it up and not be practitioners anymore. And we want to continue to be relevant and we want to continue to do the best that we can for us professionally, but certainly for the clients that we work with every day. And I think it's also appropriate to, you know, we don't have to enrage, but we can engage in dialogue. And I think then the more we do that, the more we all learn from each other. And that wasn't meant to sound trite and kumbaya, but there's just too much infighting all the time and criticism this, and this is wrong, and this is right. and No, it's not, is there are actually a whole lot of things that we all need to think about. And at the end of the day, with that patient client in the middle, how are we best serving them? And there is not one right way to do that.
2: What a fabulous, fabulous way to end this. I can't even believe that the hour is done already. I mean, we've actually gone over. Um, that's This is all the time that we have for today. I just wanna thank everybody so much for joining us. We hope that you enjoyed today's session and you got a lot out of it. Loads of food for thought, that is for sure. Um, I wanted to just give my tremendous appreciation to Alyssa and Leslie for sharing their insight, for sharing your expertise, and with such grace and such generosity. It is not easy to be the first guests on a new show, and you guys just blew it out of the water. I mean, you were beyond wonderful. So on that note, I'm also very, very pleased to announce that we've already have another great episode for Dietitian to Dietitian lined up for you. It is called Intermittent Fasting, Healthy Habit or Fad Diet. And I'm going to be speaking with Julia Sampano and Sofia Cienfuegos on August 25th about all things intermittent fasting. What does the science say? Is it an effective weight management tool? Does it have applications in other health conditions? And how does it impact those who suffer from disordered eating? So we would love to see you all there. Again, we had more than 3000 registrations for today and I just really see this thing growing into something special. Registrations are now open, so you can register through the link in the chat box, and you'll also receive information about the next episode in that follow-up email I told you about. So once again, thank you to Alyssa and Leslie. Thank you also to the A2 Milk Company for making today possible. And most importantly, guys, heartfelt thanks to all of you for tuning in and for making the world a healthier and a happier place. We'll see you all again next time. Sending a big kiss.
0: get all of the links and resources we discussed through this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review for us and a rating on the Apple podcast app. Tell us what you thought about this episode, what you learned and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We really value hearing from you and we really value your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.